This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We're up to page 340. He's explaining the what's so special about studying Torah. When a Jew studies Torah and you study the laws of the Torah, even the laws that are not relevant, that are not applicable today. And yet, when you study the laws, these laws, you are touching the divine. You're studying Hashem's wisdom, Hashem's decision, Hashem's will. This in this case, for example, Pigol, the laws of Pigol. The laws of Pigol is when the Kohen who's offering the sacrifice in the temple, if he has a disqualifying thought, he can disqualify the whole entire sacrifice. If he thinks that I'm sacrificing the animal and we're going to eat the animal or, or sprinkle the blood, at the, at the wrong time. There's a, there's a window when you can eat the animal. There's a window when you can sprinkle the blood on the altar, which completes the sacrifice. So if he thinks, I'm going to sprinkle it at night instead of during the day, the day that it, was, that it was offered as a sacrifice, or it's going to be eaten past its due date. In that case, the whole entire sacrifice becomes disqualified. His mere thought has the power to disqualify the sacrifice. That's the, what's called the laws of Pigol. Anyone who eats from the sacrifice is disqualified, loses his life, his life gets cut off. So a Jew sitting today on the Upper East Side in 2018 and studying in great detail these laws, very complex laws, laws of sacrifices. You're on Park Avenue. We have no temple. It's 2018. There's no sacrifices. No Cohen is offering any sacrifices. It's completely irrelevant. You're learning about something that has no relevance currently in your life. And yet, you're engaged in this study, and by studying these laws, you are directly touching the divine. You're touching Hashem's mind. You're studying Hashem's mind, Hashem's wisdom, Hashem's will. And this, in this case, this is what Hashem wants. It's disqualified. It's not, it is qualified. It's kosher. It's not kosher. Pure, impure, guilty, not guilty, obligated, not obligated, permitted, not permitted. So whether it's practical or not, doesn't matter. It's irrelevant if it's practical or not. The only thing that's relevant is that matters is that I'm studying the divine will. Versus when a, when a, when a person prays, a person is trying to evoke a feeling of love of Hashem and a feeling of awe of Hashem. That love and that feeling of awe of Hashem, which is generated by your understanding, your comprehension of godliness, 
based on your comprehension, the level of your comprehension, the deeper your understanding and the more penetrating your understanding, the deeper will be, more intense will be the emotion that will generate a feeling of closeness to Hashem, a feeling of yearning to cleave to Hashem, a feeling of a sense of awe of Hashem's presence. That's limited because your soul is, 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 is a created being, is a conscious, self-conscious created being. So even though you have a divine feeling, a religious feeling, a spiritual feeling, you feel so spiritual and you feel so uplifted and you feel so inspired and you feel so connected and you feel so conscious, but it's limited. It's, it's, a, it's a human consciousness. It's a soul consciousness which is limited. It's not divine. So the angels whose entire being is consumed with a love for Hashem, a burning fiery love for Hashem, or, or, a, or a sense of awe of Hashem, it's a created being. And, and its understanding is created, and its, 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 its comprehension is created, and its feelings and emotions are created. So therefore, you're not really touching the divine. As spiritual as you feel, as connected as you may feel, it's not divine. But I'm studying Torah, even the most irrelevant halacha in Torah. I'm touching the divine, I'm learning, I'm engaged in Hashem's wisdom and Hashem's work. But he says, but even though it's, it's the divine will, but it's a divine will the way it's enclosed in material. The divine will in, it discusses things that are material, practical in this world. We're talking about an animal. We're talking about the laws of agriculture, the order of agriculture in the Mishnah. We're talking about the laws of sacrifices of animals. We're talking about animals. You're talking about the landlord tenant disputes, partnerships, business, arrangements. You talk acquisitions. You're talking about things that are practical. Money, finance. So I'm dealing with the physical. Isn't prayer much more superior when I'm, I'm totally involved in something spiritual? I'm feeling close, a closeness to Hashem. I'm feeling a connection. My soul is on fire. My soul stirs. It's purely spiritual. Versus when I'm engaged in halacha and I'm studying halacha, I'm learning laws of animals. And I'm learning things that are practical and physical. And yet you tell me that the studying of Torah is superior because that's divine. Versus your emotions and your comprehension is not divine. As spiritual as it may be, as sublime as it may be, higher levels of consciousness, religiosity, spirituality, intensity, meditation. I'm dancing with the angels. My soul is soaring in ecstasy. It's not divine. But this physical thing, subject matter that I'm learning, is divine. The answer is yes. Because the divine will and divine wisdom is enclosed. It's just a garment. It's enclosed in the physical. But what's the essence of the matter? The essence of the matter is, is the divine wisdom. What does Hashem think in this in this case? What does Hashem say in this in this case? What does Hashem believe in this? What does Hashem, his opinion in this in this case? Guilty and not guilty. Obligated and not obligated. Kosher and not kosher. Permitted and not permitted. That's what I'm studying. It's not the, the subject matter. Subject matter is just a garment. But what I'm touching is, I'm touching the divine. It's like when you hug, you hug a person. Does it matter how many sets of clothes the person wears? 
Oh, the person is wearing a sweater and a jacket and a coat and three layers because it's, it's an ice box in here. <laughs> I'm hugging the person. I'm hugging the person. It doesn't matter. The clothes are just garments. It's what's inside the clothes. The Torah, the subject matter, the physical is just a garment. Whatever the subject matter may be, it's as practical, as physical as it may be, the, the, this financial disputes, whatever it may be, animals, fields, agriculture, trees, it, it, it's what's inside the garment. What I'm studying is what's Hashem, what does Hashem say, what does Hashem think about this? So what difference does it make? How many layers, how many garments? Well, what, I'm, I'm, the essence here is Hashem. That's why there's nothing superior to studying Torah. And studying the laws of the Torah in depth and in great details and spending so much time studying all the laws and all these even laws that are not practical not relevant today it doesn't matter what's relevant is that I'm engaged studying Hashem connecting with Hashem however the detailed laws of the various mitzvot are drawn from the supreme wisdom of the emanator blessed be he who is closed in physicality within the physical objects to which a particular law applies, such as the law governing the case of he who exchanges a cow for a donkey and the like. This investment of supreme wisdom in the physical aspects of the laws is not similar to the investment of supreme wisdom in an intellectually generated fear and love. Supreme wisdom is actually vested in all things, as is soon to be explained. This is especially so with regard to the love and all which are aroused by intellectual activity, for the source of all activity is supreme wisdom. An intellectually aroused love and all, however, the vestister takes uh, on a different form. For there, the garment conceals and completely obscures the supreme wisdom that is vested within it. Just as the material earth thoroughly conceals the supreme wisdom clothed within it, as it is written concerning all created beings, all of them you made with wisdom. Supreme wisdom is thus vested within all physical things, as well even the earth, which, however, completely conceals it. Just as intellectually aroused love and awe conceal the supreme wisdom vested in it. So he's saying that there's wisdom in everything. Not only that we see tremendous wisdom, the science and the wisdom and the brilliance, and everything in this world is so much wisdom and so much science. Science is scratching the surface. Scientists spend their whole careers studying one organ in the body and they still even haven't plumbed the depth there's so much wisdom in everything that we touch because Hashem creates the world with wisdom so you can find divine wisdom in everything so wisdom is compared to oil you find oil in everything today they even uh, find oil in Iraq shale America today is becoming the biggest producer of oil in the world 20 years ago, we were written off. It's over. The days are over. Uh, peak, peak oil. And all of a sudden, the world is awash in oil because of shale oil. America is the king of oil today in the world because of the rock. In Iraq, crush it. There's oil. There's oil in everything. Oil represents wisdom. There's wisdom in everything. Why? Because Hashem creates the world with wisdom. What does the Torah mean? Hashem creates the world with wisdom. Obviously. 
Is that a praise for Hashem, that everything that he does is wise? I mean, even a human being, a smart person, a wise person, whatever he does is done with wisdom. What's the unique praise of Hashem? Whatever. We're not just saying that Hashem, whatever he does is wise. It's obvious. It's not a unique praise to Hashem. Even a wise human being would also, whatever he does is done with wisdom, with thought. But Hashem creates the world with wisdom. We think and nothing happens. <laughs> Hashem thinks and the world comes into being. He thinks and He just speaks. He just says and He thinks. And the world is created. So the whole world, the substance of the world is Hashem's wisdom. That's why there's wisdom in everything. But nevertheless, the world is not God. The world is not divine. Anyone who says that this cup is divine, if you bow down to this cup, you're an idolater. But God is everywhere. God is everything. Yes, God is everywhere. God is everywhere and, and God is everything and everything is God. But if you're going to bow down to this cup, that's idolatry. Because godliness is hidden. The world in Hebrew, olam, comes from the word Helem. Godliness is concealed. So it's disconnected. I, I see a cup. I don't see God. So everything in this world, yes, there's wisdom, but the wisdom is concealed. It's covered up. It's hidden. It's opaque. You don't see that connection. You don't feel that connection. And God created it that way. Just like God has the ability to create, as we learned in the second part of Etanya, God has the ability to create something from nothing, which is only God has that ability. We think and nothing happens, and God thinks and the whole world, the whole universe comes into being. God also has the ability to hide. The name of Elohim. Even though everything is from God, and it can't last for a moment, it can't exist, and it can't be sustained for a split second without God, it's nothing but God, and yet, God has the ability to hide and conceal. And therefore everything in this world is disconnected. Appears to be on its own. I look at the table, I don't see God. I look at the tree, I don't see God. I look in the mirror, I don't see God. I see a being, I, an ego that's trying to preserve self-preservation, that's trying to continue its existence. It doesn't point its finger to God. Completely disconnected. And therefore, we were given Torah mitzvot to take this physical object. And by doing a mitzvah with it, you transform it, you change it into a godly object, into a holy object. If you're going to say God is everywhere and everywhere is God and God is everything and everything is God, then everything is holy. What's the point of a mitzvah? If you're saying that I don't see it, so it's just an illusion. So what have I accomplished? God was there before and God is there after. I do the mitzvah, I don't do the mitzvah. It's just my illusion. I don't see the truth. But in reality, everything is God. No. The Torah says that before you do the mitzvah, it's a, it's a secular object. It's a mundane object. It's not a holy object. When you take the leather hide and you write the Torah and you write the, the mezuzah and the, 
then it becomes a holy object. You take the esrog and you shake it, it becomes a holy object. You're doing a mitzvah with it. The tefillin becomes a holy object. When you put on the tefillin, it becomes a holy When a Jew who's obligated to put on tefillin, where's the tefillin? For the first time, it becomes a holy object. Because you're doing a mitzvah. Before it wasn't a holy object, and now it becomes a holy object. I've actually changed it. Something very real happened. So the Torah is telling me that before I do the mitzvah, yes, everything is God and everything is God's wisdom and God's wisdom is in everything. But it's hidden, it's concealed, it's disconnected. So when you say God is enclosed in the world, it's opaque, it's, it's total concealment. Versus, as he's going to say, we're going to learn in a moment, when you say in the Torah, God is also enclosed in the world. We're discussing material things. The Torah deals with material things, very material things. Grass and trees and fields and agriculture and animals. And you take apart the animal, the anatomy of the animal, which is a defect, which is not a defect, which is treif, which is not treif, which is kosher and not kosher. It's very practical. You talk medical ethics also, you have to get into the body, you have to understand the body, you have to understand... It's all physical. The rabbi who is a lachic authority has to be thoroughly knowledgeable, not just in the halacha, but he also has to be thoroughly knowledgeable in the, in the science, and in the, in the practical. He has to know what you're talking about. To, to, to give a verdict about a car, you have to know how a car works. <laughs> to give a verdict about medical ethics, you have to understand medicine. You can't just, it's not enough for you to be an expert in Torah. To give a halachic verdict on the animal kosher, you have to spend, as the Talmud says, the rabbi spend years studying the anatomy of the animal to be able to discuss it, to be able to understand what you're talking about. You have to know the subject matter. You have to master the subject matter, which is all practical and physical. You're talking about an anatomy of an animal, an anatomy of a human being, or medicine, or, or, or finance. You have to understand finance. To give halacha, to know if it's ribis or not ribis, if it's interest, not, you have to understand finance. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to master the subject matter. So you're also dealing with the physical. What's the difference? The, the slaughterer knows the anatomy of the animal inside out. But that's not a holy, holy, uh, a holy activity. The rabbi who spent three years in the zoo and is studying the animals, and that's a holy activity. You're studying finance, and the rabbi is studying finance. The rabbi is studying finance, that's a holy activity. He's, he's understanding finance in order to understand the Torah, to apply the Torah to this and this. Suddenly that becomes a holy activity. He's studying agriculture and the rabbi is studying agriculture to know the laws of trumas and maestras and to know exactly the laws. You have to understand, down, thoroughly master and understand what you're talking about. You have to understand agriculture thoroughly. And that's holy. So what's the difference? The botanist and the, the master in agriculture, the professor of botany, that's not that secular. That's not, nothing holy about it. Science. But when I'm studying in the Torah, this becomes holy. What's the difference between these garments and these garments? That's what he's explaining. There's a huge difference. Because, yes, God is in everything. And God's wisdom is in everything. But these garments conceal. So when the scientist is discussing or the financial expert is mastering the idea of finance or law or whatever it may be, 
Yes, there's divine wisdom and everything, but the garments completely conceal what's in the inside. It's completely opaque. It doesn't point, it doesn't connect. There's no connection to the inside. I don't see that connection. Versus when you're studying Torah, the garments are completely transparent. And he uses an analogy. He says it's like, it just passes through the garment. What do you mean it passes through the garment? For example, the writer. How does the writer write? He has to use his fingers to write. What's he writing down? His thoughts. So the talented writer is using his brilliance and his talents. Using his finger. He's writing and describing an emotional scene or a concept, an idea. So it's just passing through the finger. The finger is just... It's just passing through. The finger has no clue of what just happened. <laughs> the finger has no understanding of what was written here. Because you don't understand with your finger. Your finger is not a vessel for ideas and concepts. But you can't just sit and think and write. It won't, it won't, if I think the idea, it's not going to end up on paper. So I have to pass through the fingers. The finger is like a garment. But it's a garment that is just a pass through, passing through. It has no effect on, on what's contained inside. It doesn't shape it. It doesn't define it. It doesn't conceal it. It's just transparent. It just passes through. Because I have to put it down in ink and paper. So I need something physical. So the fingers, the hand, is the physical vehicle in order to bring this idea down in writing and pen and paper so someone else could be able to read it. But it's completely beyond the scope of the finger. Even when I write it, even when I'm physically writing with my fingers and then some pen and ink and paper, it's beyond the scope of the pen and the paper and, and the fingers it's an idea, it's a concept, it's from the world of ideas. But the world of ideas that's transmitted into the world of the physical world. But it remains something purely a concept, an idea. It's just passing through the world of action. Fingers is a world of touch, the world of action. In the world of ideas, touch doesn't exist. You can't touch an idea. And you can't not touch an idea. There's no relevance. The idea of touch doesn't exist in the world of ideas. The sense of touch. And yet I'm using my sense of touch, I'm using my fingers to convey an idea. Because in order to jot this idea down on paper, that someone should be able to, to read it, someone who's not present and can't hear me, should be able to read it in the next generation, and when the author is long gone, Forever and ever, his ideas and concepts will be read and appreciated, which could only come when it's put down in pen and paper, physical, in this world of touch. But what am I conveying? The world of touch is just transmitting something that remains pure, unadulterated, that's pure, stepping out of the world of ideas. 
It's not affected in any way by the sense of touch. It's not modified, affected, hidden, concealed, shaped, or defined. It's just see-through. It's transparent. It's just passing through. That's all. That's all it is. It's just a, a, a vehicle. Like a vehicle in the hands of the driver. It's completely, completely eagle is nullified in the driver and I'm just there to convey the driver. I'm nothing. It's like the body to the soul. The body is completely egoless. The body is just there to convey the soul. When I look at you, who am I looking at? I'm looking at your body. Yes, of course, I see your body. I can't see your soul. But what am I looking at? I'm looking at you, your personality, your character. You, the you is not your nose, your eyes, your ears. It's your soul. It's your personality. So when I'm looking at your body, what am I seeing? I'm not, of course, I'm seeing your body. But what am I really seeing? What's your body telling? What's your body? It's your soul. The body is like completely egoless. The body is completely transparent. It's not me. I'm just a container. I'm just here to convey the soul. You. So that's a type of garment that's completely see-through, completely transparent. I'm just conveying. I'm just here to convey you. I can't see souls. So I need a body. But when I'm looking at the body, what am I looking? I'm not looking at the body. I'm looking at you. I'm talking to you. I'm seeing you, your smile, your personality, your character. It was a sign in the office. Anyone who walks into this office makes me happy. Someone they walk in the door, someone they leave. <laughs> but you get a reaction. You're reacting to the person, not the body. The personality, the character, the person who walked through the door. The body is just carrying the soul. The soul is not physical. It can't be conveyed physically. But here, it's conveyed physically. That's the type of garment. That's a see-through garment. And that's like the, the, the fingers that you're writing. You're conveying an idea. But the idea is not modified or changed in any way, shape, or form by these garments. It's a completely see-through garment. It's completely nullified. And it just conveys what's inside the garment. It just conveys the idea. Faithfully. Conveys the idea. So that's the Torah. That's the type of garment of the Torah. Yes, the Torah deals with physical. and, and Really, to learn Torah, you really have to master the physical subject matter. You have to study the anatomy of the animal. You have to know what you're talking about. A real rabbi can't give a lachic verdict unless he thoroughly masters the subject matter. He knows exactly how it operates. Could you ride an elevator in a shop? I have to know, I have to know how an elevator works. And understand, truly understand how an elevator works. <laughs> he has to study, he has to go to the library, he has to, he has to research, he has to understand it. Only then can he give a lachic verdict. I have to know what you're talking about. But it's just a see-through garment. The physical, the Torah discusses the physical, but the Torah is just a see-through garment to convey Hashem, Hashem's will, Hashem's wisdom, Hashem's opinion, Hashem's thoughts. That's all it is. So it's not modified. It's not changed. It's not altered. It's undiluted. You're getting Hashem. In its purity, Hashem's will. 
it's conveyed, like the finger conveys the idea in, 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 in letters, in, wor- in words, in letters, in pa- pen and paper, ink and paper. So yes, Hashem's will is conveyed in this physical, in a physical form, in a physical uh, case, dealing with a physical matter. So it's a way to convey Hashem's will in our world, in our dimension that we can relate to. I understand animals, I understand uh, an esrog, I understand uh, finance, I understand agriculture. So I'm talking about something that I can relate to. But, but what's being conveyed here? Hashem himself. Totally, completely undiluted. Just like the body conveys the soul, just like the fingers convey the concept. Completely undiluted. Versus the science per se, finance per se, agriculture per se, anatomy per se. Yes, there's Hashem's wisdom in everything. But there the garment conceals, the garment distorts, the garment alters. It's like in the times of the Talmud, the teacher was so brilliant and was so beyond the students. It was like Einstein in comparison to the students. So he needed a, a maturgaman. Maturgaman was an interpreter. Because it was too deep, too abstract for the students. So he had an interpreter. interpreter was like an intermediate. He was on a higher level than the students, but he was on a lower level than the teacher. So first he would listen to the teacher grasp the concept, digest it, and then he would find the words to convey the concept to the students. So yes, he was conveying the teacher's idea, but the teacher's idea was modified, was conveyed, was captured in his garment, but it, it, it was limited. The garment was limiting. It, was, it was, had to fit, and it, it modified it. And it synthesizes and it went through because he had to internalize it and then he was able to convey the idea. So the idea was not, you can't say the idea was, was undiluted. It wasn't as pure as the original. It was modified, packaged in a way that the student could receive. But the idea was internalized. It wasn't just a finger. <laughs> it wasn't just a pass thing through, a, a conveyor. No, he digested the idea, internalized the idea, and limited it, and modified it, and therefore he was able to convey it. So that's a garment that conceals. That's an intermediate that conceals the idea. So that's how the whole world was created. The whole world was created, everything is created by the divine energy. But the divine energy is concealed. And this concealment, as you're going to say, the, the level of malchus, which is the lowest level, which Hashem communicates, the words and letters which Hashem communicates and, and um, internalizes this light. Words and letters capture the light, internalize the light. And when you internalize the light, internalize the concept, it's modified. It's different. It changes. It's not the same. It's not the same. Now it becomes an internal light, a limited light, an internalized light. It's not the same. 
It's like in the soul. You have the transcendent life of the soul, where all 100 trillion cells are all alive, equally alive. Every part of you is alive. You're not a machine, you're alive. Your toenail, every part of you is alive. All 100 trillion cells. And that's all encompassing. Undifferentiated. But then you have the internalized energy. The brain has the power to comprehend. The eyes has the power to see. The ears has the power to hear. The nose has the power to smell. The mouth has the power to, to speak, to taste. Every organ has its individual power. So that's an internalized energy. It's not this general energy. It's not like electricity. You plug in electricity, and it doesn't matter to the electricity whether you're plugging in a toaster or you're plugging in a TV or a computer. It's the same energy. Whatever it happens to be plugged in will we'll, we'll start working. So you would think the body is the same way. You plug in, and the eye starts seeing, and the nose starts hearing, and it's smelling, and the ears start... And the brain starts comprehending, and the heart starts feeling... It's not true. It's not the way it works. The heart has a unique energy that's unique to the heart, the, ability, the emotions. And that only it's expressed in the heart. It doesn't match any other organ. It's, it's an internalized energy. So from this undifferentiated, all-encompassing life and energy, suddenly now you have individualized energy, which is contained and limited the unique ability to comprehend, the unique ability to feel emotions, the unique ability to see, to hear, etc. How do you get from undifferentiated energy to this internalized energy? That's the function of malchus. Malchus. Royalty, which is the speech, which is the words and letters, which is God's communication, God's speech. We are God's language. The universe, and man, we are God's language because it's God's speech that the words and letters not only contain the light, but they differentiate the light. Every word, every letter has its own shape and its own meaning and its own, every name, everything in this world has its own name. So the, the light, the all-transcendent, all-compensive light is now channeled and changed. The light is changed. Now it becomes an internal light. It's modified. It's concealed. It's, 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 that's the name of Lokim. That's the divine miracle of Elohim. Just like creation is a divine miracle, the ability for God to limit Himself and the ability for God to take this infinite transcendent light and to transform it into an internal light which is modified and limited and contained and fits every unique individual creature and creation. That's divine. That's also divine. And that's a concealment. And that's a disconnect. It's a limited light. It's not this infinite, transcendent, divine light. So the world has changed. The world is, exists. It's not an illusion. God created the world. And it's a, sec- it's a mundane world. And it's up to us, the Jew, to come into this world and take the mundane and to transform it into something holy when we do a mitzvah with this mundane and physical object. Only then does the object become holy. It's not an illusion. Something very real happens when we do a mitzvah. Moshe begged and pleaded to go into the land of Israel because he wanted to do mitzvahs. Because with all his spirituality and seeing the world from a purely divine perspective, the world is not godly. 
It's only when you do a mitzvah, when you take the physical and do a mitzvah with it, you're accomplishing something, you're innovating, you're doing something creative, you're taking something physical and transforming it into something divine, into the transcendent, infinite, divine light of Hashem, by doing the mitzvah, filling Hashem's wish and will with this physical object. But when you study Torah, even though the Torah deals with the nitty-gritty and the mundane, and the Torah gets into every specific aspect of life and reality, but what are we dealing with here? With the divine, with the transcendent, with the infinite, with Hashem's will, with Hashem's wisdom. But the Torah is dealing with the physical? Yes, but it's totally transparent. It's like the finger conveying the idea. The idea is unmodified, the idea is unchanged. It's totally, like the body conveying the soul. It's totally unmodified. It's, it's, it's a container that's completely transparent. So I'm, I'm dealing with the infinite. I'm dealing with Hashem Himself. That's why a Jew gets so excited about studying Torah and spending our life and spending the majority of our time studying the nitty-gritty, the physical, the halachot, all the laws in the Torah, all the laws, even laws that are completely irrelevant to it. doesn't matter. I'm dealing with the infinite, I'm dealing with the divine, I'm dealing with Hashem Himself. And I'm bringing Hashem down into this world. By studying Torah and getting involved in the nitty-gritty and all the physical halachot that I'm dealing with, I'm bringing the infinite, I'm bringing Hashem Himself into every aspect of this world. Undiluted. Hashem Himself, I'm bringing Him down in the most undiluted form, transparent form, into every aspect of existence. To be able to bring the infinite into a finite, finite world, finite expression, and um, this is only through Torah. Only through Torah. That the world is not changed. The world is physical. I'm dealing with a physical animal. I'm dealing with a landlord-tenant. I'm dealing with disputes, with partnerships, the laws, all the laws in the Torah. And what am I bringing into this setting? What am I bringing into this realm? The world hasn't changed. The world remains finite and limited and specific and physical and material. But what am I bringing by studying Torah? What am I bringing into the world? What am I drawing down? I'm drawing down Hashem's infinite transcendent self. Is there anything like studying Torah? How powerful, how beautiful, how special it is to study Torah. Enough for us to spend most of our time, most of our waking, most of our lives, spending hours upon hours upon hours studying the Torah, studying all 613 mitzvahs, studying all the halacha. Practical, not practical. This totally engages us. And we study it with such excitement, with such enthusiasm, such realizing how special it is, how unique it is. Nothing like it exists. It's a gift that Hashem gave us. So we study Torah with such relish. This extremism is the externality of the externality of the vessel of the Matzilut found in the Siyah that is actually hidden in the Ruach Nefesh of the Siyah. Malchut of Atzilut with the externality of the externality of the vessel is wholly concealed in Ruach Nefesh of the Siyah. 
mouthful of attributes itself, even the externality of the externality of its vessels belongs to the realm of the Shama and the divinity proper, yet it is entirely hidden within the Nefeshua, which belongs to the realm of created being. Since supreme wisdom is vested in Malkut of Atsilut, and Malkut of Atsilut illuminates the Sia with its tense fruit, containing as they do the element of wisdom as well, we thus have supreme wisdom entirely concealed in the first order. We learned in the second part of the Tanya that the whole creation really begins with the attribute of Malchut, of royalty, or speech. Because speech is something you don't need for yourself. Speech is totally external to the person. Why do you need speech? For someone else, someone outside of you, for the other person. I don't need to speak to know what I'm thinking. What, what, what speech? Speech is communicating what's going on inside of me, what I'm feeling what I'm thinking, what I am I'm thinking about, I'm understanding. I don't need speech. It doesn't add anything to me. I don't need it. It's completely relevant. If you're Robinson Crusoe, who are you going to speak to? There's no one to talk to. There's no one to argue with. There's no need for speech. A name. Do you need a name if you're alone in the world? Does a name add anything to you? It's like if you don't have a name, you're missing a finger. Are you missing anything without a name? You go through your whole life, you have no name. What is that? A name is a handle for someone else to identify you. I don't need a name for myself. I don't need speech for myself. A king. Could you be king over yourself? You're Robinson Crusoe. I'm going to crown myself. I'm going to coronate myself. I love myself. And I worship myself. And I am king. You can't be king over yourself. Even your children can't, can't make you king. A king is a subject. Subjects make you king. Someone outside of you. Not even your ministers. Subjects. So the whole world, the whole creation comes into being with the attribute of royalty. Beyond the attribute of royalty, you have Hashem himself. Hashem's mind, so to speak. Hashem's uh, emotions. But that's all characterizes Hashem himself. Hashem is infinite. Where does the world, the idea of something outside of Hashem, where does that begin? With the attribute of royalty. The difference is uh, that we speak, the other person exists before we start speaking. So I need to speak to communicate with them. The subjects exist before the king becomes king. And now the subjects subject themselves to the king and coronate him as king. Hashem, he has no one to speak to because <laughs> all there exists is Hashem. There's, there are no subjects. All there is is God. There's nothing else. But God wanted to be king. So it's the attribute of royalty that creates the subjects, that creates the entity to speak to. That brings into, into existence the, the, an entity that feels separate and apart from Hashem and therefore can have a relationship to Hashem like a subject to a king and we submit ourselves to Hashem and by us submitting ourselves to Hashem, we coronate Hashem as king of the universe and Hashem is communicating to us and speaking to us and has a relationship with us. So it's all the attribute of royalty. Now, the attribute of royalty itself is two parts of the attribute of royalty. The king, by definition, the royal, the monarch, the king is someone who's head and shoulders, like it says in the Bible, in the Tanakh, in Shmuel, the first Jewish king, Shoal, 
He was head and shoulders above. That's where the expression comes from. Head and shoulders above everyone. He was taller than everyone. He stood out. Not just physically. That was just a symptom. He was head and shoulders above everyone around him. That's why he qualified to be king. So the king is king because he transcends the subjects. He's so much greater than the subjects. He's just head and shoulders above everyone and that's why, how do you treat a king, the foundation of a king? You have to treat a king with awe, with reverence. You're not allowed to sit in the king's chair. If you sit in the king's chair, off with your head. Treason. You have to, you don't, you're not allowed to even mention the king's name. If you, call, if you call the king by your first name, off with your head. Your highness. You have to treat him with respect. The king has to be treated with awe and reverence because the king is transcendent. He's in his royal palace. His majesty. It's, it's, it's majestic. Everything about the king is majestic. He's, he projects majesty. He's transcendent. He's something special about the king. He's beyond the subject. He's beyond the kingdom. So the whole relationship begins in the transcendent level. Then comes the second aspect of the king. That the king conducts the matters of a kingdom. Now he gets involved in the nitty-gritty. Okay, I have to make sure my kingdom is running and I have to make sure that the people have a livelihood and I have to make sure there's rules and laws and that everything is in the harmonious. And there's... So that's the king already getting involved in the nitty-gritty. So it starts out with a transcendent level and then you have the external level of Malchut where the king gets involved with a nitty-gritty. And that's where the world comes into being. That's where, from the external, external level of Malchut, that's where you have this pluralistic, differentiated existence that Hashem created, this multiplicity of, multiplicity of existence and, and beings and creatures and levels that Hashem sustains and animates and creates and is involved in down to the tiniest detail. Well, what, what's the first level that Hashem creates? The neshama. The neshama is not creation. The neshama, which is the soul of everything. Everything has a soul. Just like we have a soul. We sense our soul. We sense the existence of our soul. We sense that we're alive. We feel that energy. We feel alive. But that soul is really godly because it's a mystery we don't understand the soul we don't understand life we know that we're alive but it's a mystery to us all the scientists in the world can create the life of a fly it's not a mechanical event the person is not a mechanical event we're not a building blocks of, of Lego and we put together a body and then we end up with a soul no yeah, you have a corpse Life comes from within. Life is truly a divine miracle. We can't explain life. Where does life come from? It comes from within. It's a divine miracle. It's a mystery. So while we sense the existence of the neshama, but the essence of the neshama is something that comes from within, from the divine. We can't explain it. It's a pure miracle. It's divine. If we were living in a sane world, in a rational world, people wanted to relax after work. Instead of building stadiums to watch 
overgrown adults <laughs> hitting balls with the wood. They would build stadiums around the maternity ward to watch the miracle of life, the miracle of existence. <laughs> it's an astonishing miracle every day. How could, I mean, where does this come from? We can't explain it scientifically or rationally. It's, it's, it's a miracle. The Nisham, I'm alive. What do you mean I'm alive? What's that life? What is it? I have no idea. It's not, it's not a machine. It's not an event, a mechanical event. It's a purely mystery. It's a divine mystery. So I feel I'm alive and I feel in Nishama, but I don't feel. I don't feel. Most people go through their entire life and don't feel the mystery of life. Don't appreciate the divine mystery of life. Because the neshama creates the next level, which is nefesh and ruach. Nefesh and ruach is that energy. But it's disconnected. I feel energized, I feel full of energy, and my whole life is about energy. I want to be energized. A person wants to live, I want to be, have a life full of energy. I want a, a life full of passion and life and excitement and fun and... and, and I don't want a dull existence. I want to be alive. I want to have a life that's, that's energized. So I'm looking for energy, and I want energy, and, I, and, and that's what defines life. But there's a disconnect. I don't make the connection to the divine. The neshama. What's life? You only have life if you're connected to the source of life, which is Hashem. Where does life come from? It comes from the divine. It's the divine malchut. It's the external, the external level of malchut. Where Hashem, like the king, is getting involved in the nitty-gritty of his kingdom and sustaining everyone in his kingdom. Hashem gets involved and gives each and every one of us our own personal neshama, our own personal energy in life. But that's divine. There's speech. But when there's speech, there's a speaker. I don't disconnect the speech from the speaker. That's neshama. So the neshama that Hashem gives, the soul that Hashem gives, every creature and every entity is connected to the speaker. It's divine. The neshama is divine. Yes, it's my particular neshama, but it's divine. But that gives birth to the next level. Nefesh and ruach which is energy, but disconnected, concealed. That's a created entity. Energy. There's speech, but there is no speaker. There's life. There's energy. Hello? Energy? Why do you have energy? Where does this energy come from? It doesn't just come from thin air. How do you have, ener- how do you have electricity if it's not connected to the generator? How could you have energy if it's not connected to the source of life? The soul to the rare is completely hidden in the raw nefesh of the rare, which are things that are created by the concealment and hiding of the creator from the creator. We thus have an element of supreme wisdom concealed within intellectually aroused love and fear, the source of which is the world of the rare, the realm of comprehension. To every world, every level has its own, its own reality, the world of intellect, the world of bria, the world of emotions, the world of yitzida, the world of action. So, so the, the understanding godliness and generating a feeling of awe and emotion and love of Hashem, that's basically from the world of Bria. That's the reality of the world of Bria. But even that is a creation. The angels are created. 
Yes, they're, they're spiritual, but they're created entities. So they sense the nefesh and ruach. But the, the, neshama, the neshama is godly. And the neshama gives birth to the nefesh ruach, which creates all the, all the created beings of that world, including the angels and the souls of the world of Bria. So, so any spirituality, spiritual generated uh, understanding of Hashem and emotions of Hashem, it's, it's, it's a created entity. It's separated from Hashem. It's not divine. It's not God. This is not so, however, with regard to the laws in which a radiance of wisdom illuminates the manifesting and do not conceal it. The garment of a seer serves merely as a passage. Though the laws vested in the physical things in this world, the physical world of a seer, although subject to the concealment that pervades a seer, they are not garbed in it to the point that the garment essentially affects the wearer. They merely pass through the garment of a seer. We'll continue this idea next time we meet next week. But he's saying that the garment of the Torah, even though the garment is also very physical and specific and very practical, but it just passes through. It's not, it's not, doesn't conceal it and it doesn't modify it or define it or change it in any way. It's completely unchanged, completely undiluted. Like the finger, the idea that passes through the finger, the idea is completely undiluted, unchanged, unmodified, unaffected by the finger. The finger is completely see-through. It's just there to convey. It's just there to serve. It, it, it's, it's, it doesn't, it's nothing. Like the body, it conveys the soul. It's completely egoless, completely nullified before the soul, so it's totally transparent. So the physical, no matter what subject matter you're studying in Torah, it's completely transparent, it's totally there to convey Hashem's infinite wisdom, Hashem's infinite will, Hashem's infinite transcendent self. And it conveys it in the specific, the nitty-gritty, into every aspect of this physical world, through the study of Torah. That's why studying of Torah is so powerful, so profound, so essential, so key, so critical. It's such an essential part of a Jew's life. Studying Torah is so essence, essential part of a Jew's life and a Jew's mission of changing this world, of bringing, making this world a dwelling place for Hashem. How, can, how do you bring Hashem into this world? That this world remains a finite, limited world, and yet... While this world remains a finite, limited world, it's able to contain and to house Hashem's infinite transcendent self. How do you do that? Only through studying Torah. Because when you and the Jew is studying Torah, and it's, it's Hashem is transparent, and you're conveying undiluted Hashem's essence, and Hashem's, you're conveying it and bringing it down into all the nitty-gritty, tiny, into the details, every aspect of this world. That's why the Torah is called Hashem Oz Lama Yitin. Torah is powerful because, and it brings peace. Because it reconciles opposites. A world which is finite and limited, Hashem created it, where Hashem is hidden and concealed and it's disconnected and everything is limited and specific. And in this limited world, we're able to reconcile and make peace and draw down the Jew, by studying Torah, is able to draw down Hashem's infinite, transcendent self, undiluted, unadulterated, totally revealed. Just like when Hashem came down the mountain 
with thunder and lightning. When you study Torah, you also have to, every time you're studying Torah, the Talmud says you have to, it's like thunder and lightning, like the first time. You have to, you have to study Torah, you have to tremble, with, you have to sweat. Because Hashem, just like when the first time when Hashem came down the mountain, we, we trembled. Every time you're studying Torah, they, you're doing the exact same thing. You're drawing down Hashem's infinite essence, self, into this world, into this limited, finite world. While the world remains a finite, limited world. You're not destroying the world. You're not changing the world. The world remains finite. And while the world remains finite, now the world contains and houses Hashem's infinite transcendence. Every time we study Torah, we accomplish it. Wow. (laughs) It's a different learning. It's a different study. Something very holy has happened. Something very godly. <laughs> this is the essence of our mission as Jews. This is, what, this is why we've been spending 3,330 years studying Torah day and night. This gets to the essence of what our mission as Jews are. Our whole mission in this world. Of changing the world, transforming the world. And fulfilling Hashem's wish of, of transforming this world into a home, a dwelling place for Hashem. A place Hashem says, I feel at home. Instead of Hashem being a ho- homeless place where Hashem says I feel totally at home in this world through our studying of Torah every time we study Allah every time we study any part of Torah any Allah in Torah relevant not relevant doesn't matter but it has to be a genuine studying of Torah you have to thoroughly understand the subject matter you have to to honestly understand what you're saying and what you're talking about And, and when it's an honest studying of Torah that's why it's totally engaging because to study Torah properly it has to be honest you have to totally understand it and master it and it has to be clear and, and that's how we fulfill our divine purpose so in this letter in this, in this essay this is the third part of the essay the last part of the essay the first part of the essay we learn how there's nothing like prayer prayer is off the charts is nothing like prayer. And the second part of the essay, there's nothing like mitzvahs, nothing like practical mitzvahs. And this part is, there's nothing like studying Torah. And you know what? You're right, and you're right, and you're right. <laughs> and that's why a Jew does all three. And when we pray, there's nothing like prayer. A Jew is lost in prayer. We're not praying in order to get back to the study. Okay, let, let, let me quickly, uh, let me give, no, no. When I'm praying, I'm praying. There's nothing like prayer. But I'm doing a mitzvah. That's it. There's nothing like the mitzvah. This is it. I'm totally present, I'm here. When I'm studying Torah, there's nothing like Torah. (laughs) This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.